I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 141, and it's all about Thomas Eliot and specifically his book, The Governor, and its impact on court and on 16th century politics. So you can get show notes for this episode at englandcast.com slash Elliot. That's englandcast.com slash E-L-Y-O-T. So normally this is the part of the show where I would plug TudorCon or my shop or something like that. But we're living in weird times right now, friends. For a lot of us, there's maybe the want, the desire to escape. So I would just remind you, Two things. First, you can get an archive of all of my shows at englandcast.com slash archive. There's, gosh, over 141, 140 episodes now. Um, of course, you can also get them all on your podcatcher of choice. But I also want to recommend another Agora podcast, which is When Diplomacy Fails which is a really great show um, that Zach has put together. And it's a podcast about times in history when diplomacy has failed. And he's not particularly interested in looking at what one general did or another general did or anything like that. He delves into the human agency, the story populated by sometimes ingenious, sometimes fatally flawed human beings who believed or had been led to believe that the time was right for war. And so it's a really fascinating podcast that looks at diplomacy and when it failed, hence the name. So I would just remind you if you're looking for a bit of listening escapism, if you're at home right now and you're quarantined, or maybe you're on lockdown like I am in Spain at the moment, um, you can check out any of the Agora podcast shows or any of the Agora podcast network shows. So, yes, I will be back to remind you about TudorCon and all of that other stuff once we get through this madness, but let's get through this madness first, okay? <laughs> so, let's talk about Thomas Eliot. He is a name that you come across fairly often when you read about the literature of the Tudor period. 
He even appears on the periphery of other subjects. For example, if you are an um, observant listener, you will recognize him because I talked about his book, Castle of Health, before when we talked about Tudor medicine. He was prolific throughout the 1530s, but his career started with a treatise on what on the surface seems like education, but is really a meditation on the power of a monarch, the justification for monarchical systems of government, and the importance of wise counselors. When I was in high school studying European history, I remember the first primary source in my class was Machiavelli's The Prince. That has come down to us as the gold standard in books on governance and advice to kings and the politics of the ends justifying the means and early political humanism, right? But England had its own literary counselor in the form of Thomas Eliot. And his book, which was called The Book Named the Governor, actually outsold Thomas More's Utopia at the time. It was a bestseller. It was dedicated to Henry VIII, and this treatise was on the best form of education for royals and nobles. So let's talk about Thomas Eliot first. This next bit comes to us from a website created by the town where he died, Carlton, in Cambridgeshire. Historians believe that he was born around 1489 to 1490, but they've not yet found a record of his birth. He was the first son of Sir Richard Eliot of Wiltshire in London and his first wife, Alice Delamere, who was the daughter of Thomas Delamere from Berkshire. Alice was the widow of another Sir Thomas. She already had several children. And both Cambridge and Oxford universities claim to have Eliot as an alumnus. By his own account, Thomas Eliot was continually trained in some daily affairs of the public wheel almost from childhood. His father was a prominent lawyer of West Country stock. He was appointed the justice for the Western Circuit in 1506 and employed his son as a clerk on the circuit from around 1510. Meanwhile, the humanistic studies, which Eliot was to turn to such good use in later years, were not neglected. He says himself that he was educated in his father's house and not instructed by another teacher from his 12th year, but led by himself into liberal studies and both sorts of philosophy. He also studied, studied medicine, he studied the works of Galen and Hippocrates, and by 1531 he published his first successful work, The Book, The Governor, which is what this episode is about. On the surface, it might seem silly to have an episode, a whole episode about one small book, but the questions that it raises and the themes that it discusses are pertinent to us today, perhaps more than ever. Now, I had originally meant to release this episode towards the end of January, and it was right around the same time as the impeachment trial finished up in the US and England separated from the EU with Brexit. And it seems like the questions that this seemingly innocuous little book deals with are worth bringing up and debating with each other again now. And I'm going to add that's not a political commentary. I mean, I suppose it is, but it's not furthering one side over another. Every once in a while, someone will send me an email or a message on Facebook telling me how angry they are that I go there politically. And depending on how you listen to this episode, you might think I've done it again. The point that I'm making isn't to knock one side or the other, but rather to point out the similarities between us and the Tudors. You know, I always say that the 21st century is basically like the 16th century, only with cell phones and technology. But so many of the issues that we deal with today are the same issues that the Tudors dealt with. It's like deja vu. We debate the limits of executive branch in our democracy. They debated the role of good counselors, what we might call the cabinet, in a world where there was no check on the executive. 
they're sort of same, same, but different. And I think in reading their discussions and understanding their own concerns and fears, that can inform our discussions today, which, and I might be naive in thinking this, can be respectful and seeking to understand and to listen rather than simply spewing vitriol. And that is the end of that note. So if you couldn't have guessed by now, there is a lot more to this book than simply a treatise on education. Eliot was a clever man who managed to fit a complete commentary on the events of 1531, which was the height, of course, of Henry's great matter. The same year, he put aside Catherine of Aragon for good and installed Anne Boleyn with her own royal apartments. And he did all of that through this book that appeared to be simply a book about whether or not to practice archery daily. The answer is yes. He writes, and verily, I suppose that before crossbows and hand guns were brought into this realm, by the slight of our enemies, to the intent to destroy the noble defense of archery, continual use of shooting in the longbow made the feat so perfect and exact among Englishmen. Greg Walker writes in Writing Under Tyranny, English Literature and the Henrician Reformation that the idea of the governor is really a text for and about the schoolroom has led its advocates not only to miss the book's crucial political dimension, but also to undervalue its intellectual and aesthetic qualities. The governor is a justification of monarchy and divine right hidden in a treatise on education. This kind of writing, treatises on education with subtly hidden agendas, was popular. Not only the prince, but also the Spanish humanist Juan Luis Vives wrote a treatise on education for women, specifically on Princess Mary. There's also Erasmus, who, in his Education of a Christian Prince, made the point for Charles V 15 years earlier that in a monarchy, a leader is not chosen. He says, born to office and not elected, which was the custom among some barbarian people, according to Aristotle. And as such, he must be educated to become a great prince through his counselors and teachers. The most important figure in government, according to Erasmus, wasn't the monarch himself, but the counselor who taught the monarch and who guided the king. Eliot made the same point. The end of all doctrine and study is good counsel, whereunto, as unto the principal point, which geometricians do call the center, all doctrines, which by some authors be imagined in the form of a circle, do send their effects like unto equal lines. Thus, the work of the counselor was actually the most important work in the kingdom. And it was important for the counselor himself to be educated, to be free from hatred, vice, and jealousy. Kings did not have to be perfect. They just needed to listen to their good counsels. And if a king stopped listening to counsel, he would risk becoming a tyrant. And counselors themselves, he writes, I call him a good counselor who, as Caesar saith in the conjuration of Catiline, Whilst he consulteth in doubtful matters, is void of all hate and friendship, displeasure, or pity. The role of the counselor was to provide honest debate and to give wise counsel. And it was the one duty of the monarch in a world where his word was final to actually pay attention and listen to the counselor and to be open-minded when the counselor spoke their concerns or provided criticism. How all of this related to Henry VIII is that Henry himself was brought up with these ideals when he was a young student learning how to be a king. When he was crowned in 1509, he gave every intention of wanting to follow these ideals. He accepted counsel from men based on their merits rather than their nobility, most famously in the case of Cardinal Woolsey. If you could see how all the world here is rejoicing in possession of so great a prince, how his life and all their desire you could not contain your tears for joy. 
wrote Lord Mountjoy to Erasmus in 1509. Men like Eliot watched as Henry slowly became more tyrannical over the next two decades, promoting favorites and refusing to listen to his trusted counselors towards the end of the 1520s. Eliot and the people like him were faced with a dilemma. Loyalty to the crown as an institution versus loyalty to the one person who held the position of monarch. And out of these concerns and questions, we get Eliot's book, The Governor, with its discussion of contemporary English politics. Eliot does this subtly, referring back to classical antiquity to show how successful rulers like Augustus and Alexander would fill the halls with eloquent speakers, lawyers, and philosophers. They shall also consider that by their preeminence they sit, as it were on a pillar on the top of a mountain, where all the people do behold them, not only in their open affairs, but also in their secret pastimes, privy dalliance, or other unprofitable or wanton conditions, which soon be discovered by the conversation of their most familiar servants, who do always embrace that study wherein their master delighteth. As the judge of the people is, so be his ministers, and such as be the governors of the city, such be the people. The role of these counselors starts from the time a prince is born. In the nursery, one should find such companions and playfellows, which shall not do in his presence any reproachable act, or speak any unclean word or oath, neither to advance him with flattery, remembering his nobility, nor like any other thing wherein he might glory, unless it be to persuade him to virtue, or to withdraw him from vice, in the remembering to him the danger of his evil example. So you can see here, Eliot is making the case for wise counsel that will speak truth to power rather than the people who will simply go along because they want to be in power themselves. He goes on to give examples from antiquity of times when freedom of speech had been curtailed and the monarch had refused to listen to the counselors and advisors culminating in the assassination of Julius Caesar. Oh, what damage ensued to princes and their realms where liberty of speech hath been restrained. What availed fortune incomparable to the great King Alexander, his singular doctrine and philosophy taught him by Aristotle in delivering him from the death in his young and flourishing age, where if he had retained the same affability that was in him at the beginning of his conquest and had not put to silence his counselors who before used to speak to him frankly, he might have escaped all violent death and by similitude have enjoyed the whole monarchy of all the world. For after that he waxed to be terrible in manners and prohibited his friends and discreet servants to use their accustomed liberty in speech, he fell into a hateful grudge among his own people. The note here is that during the Tudor period, the general assumption was that Alexander the Great had been murdered through poison, a theory that still persists to this day to help explain the agonizing death that he experienced. Eliot goes on to Julius Caesar. But I had almost forgotten Julius Caesar, who, being not able to sustain the burden of fortune and envying his own felicity, abandoned his natural disposition and, as it were, being drunk with overmuch wealth, sought new ways how to be advanced above the state of mortal princes. Wherefore, little and little he withdrew from men, his accustomed gentleness becoming more sturdy in language and strange in countenance than ever before had been his usage, and to declare more plainly his intent he made an edict or decree that no man should press to come to him uncalled, and that they should have good await that they should not speak in familiar fashion to him as they had been before accustomed, whereby he did so alienate from him the hearts of the most wise and assured adherents 
that from that time forward, his life was to them tedious and abhorring him as a monster or the common enemy, they being knit in confederacy, slew him sitting in the Senate. You see here that Eliot was making the case for wise counsel and for listening to wise counsel. Cardinal Wolsey died at the end of November 1530. The governor was published in 1531 during the height, like I said, of the great matter. This was a period when the politics of Henry's court were messy, with the various factions representing Anne, including reformers and Protestants like Cromwell and the Boleyn family, were vying with older and more established counselors representing the queen, the pope, tradition, like Thomas More, who had just been appointed chancellor, and many religious leaders, including Bishop Fisher, who had been Margaret Beaufort's chaplain. Eliot is worried about this state of affairs, arguing that there need to be fewer people who are yes-men looking to use the king for their own rise, and more people who are willing to speak openly and honestly, secure in the knowledge that the king will, if not listen to them, at least not punish them for their views. It is important to note that Eliot makes no mention of other forms of government besides monarchy. He does not go into any sort of detail on the ways that Parliament, for example, could curtail a monarch. He believes clearly in royal supremacy, which would have pleased Henry, again, to whom this book was dedicated. But there are also no discussions of royal supremacy over the church or anything disparaging on the role of Rome in deciding English affairs. Eliot clearly wasn't trying to appeal to Henry's agenda in full, but rather to point out the importance of a monarch guided by wise and learned counselors who was constantly looking out for the good of the common weal rather than simply his own. And in turn, it was a treatise on the education of those men who would someday advise the monarch that they be there for the right reasons, basically, and not simply seeking to advance their own power without challenging the monarch but instead to give criticism and hold the monarch accountable at a time when there were no other branches of government to do so. So, does that make you want to read The Governor? You can read it online for free. I have links to the show notes at englandcast.com slash Elliot. That's it for this week. It's a bit of political science from the Tudor period to get you thinking. And please don't send me hate mail about politics, right? If you're thinking about it, just don't. You will simply prove my thesis about the importance of respectful conversations, seeking to understand, and it will immediately get it deleted, thus wasting both our energies. The book recommendation for this episode is, of course, Thomas Eliot's The Book, The Governor. Like I said, it's free to read online, and the show notes are at englandcast.com slash Eliot, E-L-Y-O-T. Remember to check out all the other podcasts in the Agora Podcast Network. Um, TudorCon is at this point still scheduled to happen in October. Um, yeah, that's what I can say about that. I will have more information on tickets and all that kind of stuff here as we see how this strange situation we're in plays out. But for now, go listen to some more podcasts. Check out all the Agora shows, When Diplomacy Fails, and the England Cast Archive. And yeah, let me know what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're doing during your quarantine period. You can get in touch with me through Twitter at Tesco. You can dial, you can text the listener support line at 8016 Tesco, or you can email me or message me through Facebook, facebook.com slash Englandcast. So be well, take care of each other, check on your vulnerable neighbors and friends and parents and grandparents and Just take care of yourselves and take care of one another. And I will be back again in about two weeks 
maybe a little less, I have another episode written. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrich, that soli semlis on sea. Menschful maiden of me, fair and freight of fond. In all this world, flesh of one, born of blood and of bone, never yet in Uston on, not somewhere in London. Blow northern wind, send for me be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Here is dead a worth in dying, gratitude. Stoughton guy, gentle jolly saw the joy, won't leak when he walketh. Maiden merest of both, best be west, be north and south. There is fiel and a crook that such mirthus maketh. Blow northern wind, send for me be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.